out there, and welcome to another episode of the Owens Recovery Science Podcast. This is Johnny Owens, and I'm excited about today's episode because we're going to talk about a topic that's near and dear to all of us who work in rehabilitation's hearts, and that is the freaking fast loss of muscle that happens after injury or surgery that we see all the time, and what are some of the first steps we need to do to be able to maybe slow this, this terrible process. So first thing we're going to do is we're going to kind of talk internally as a group about what, what even happens and why do our patients lose muscle so rapidly. This this fascinating topic called anabolic resistance, which most of us uh, really need to understand better. And, and some of us who never heard of it really need to hear it for the first time and, and start to understand it better. And then we're going to have our, our interview with a good old friend of mine, uh, Professor Kevin Tipton, who's over in Europe. He's one of the leading uh, muscle fizz guys and, and really understands the, the nutrition side, both from performance and from the clinical aspects. And, and one thing that we can do as clinicians is discuss what they're doing nutritionally during this recovery period that we're working with a win. So maybe one of the first things we have to talk about with patients is, hey, give me your weight. Let's multiply that weight by 1.5 to 2 grams and get a grams per kilogram dose of protein that you should be ingesting throughout the day. And, and you know what? That's your home exercise program. So Kevin's going to help us understand a whole lot more of the things we should and shouldn't do uh, as a clinical nutrition strategy during the recovery phases. So I'm excited for this. So let's do it. This is the Owens Recovery Science Podcast, hosted by physical therapist. Johnny Owens. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Owens Recovery Science Podcast. Um, it's been a while since our last podcast, maybe a couple of weeks. We're going to probably do these every every two weeks, and um, we've got a super exciting one today. Uh, one of one of my 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 good old friends, Dr. Kevin Tipton, who's who's one of the leaders and. In nutrition science, and especially in athletic performance with nutrition and clinical nutrition, is, is our expert today. And as always, we've got the Knucklehead Gang back together to to set up our topic here before we interview the expert. So, um, with me again, I've, I've got Kyle California Kimbrell, who's probably still <laughs> sitting in the same bar stool that we left him in last time. Uh, yep, standard. Standard. I've got Ben Broken Weatherford, who suffered a foosh injury trying to race his little toddler around and, and now is immobilized and, and is going to be our example of, of our topic today, which is anabolic resistance and the loss of muscle. So um, ben, will, ben will probably always be in one form of immobilization because he's constantly broken. And yep. then we have Zach, always looking for a good nickname. Don't call it a comeback. Dunkle, who... <laughs> is all up in that his Penn State Nittany Lions should be ranked number one because they have a better record than Alabama currently and um, in January, if that holds true. So what's up, guys? Welcome back. Good morning. Good morning. So hey everybody. Our, our one kind of thing, where, where are we all at? It sounds like we're all back at our home bases right now and, and just to kind of like to talk about our travels and cool things we might have seen recently. So, so I'll kick it off, man. So, uh, a couple of weeks ago, I was up at Uniform Services University up in DC, which is which is kind of like the med school and uh, fellowship program for for the military. It's it's right next to Walter Reed, and and we did a, a private training up there with those guys, which which was which was a blast. And a lot of my old friends were there. 
Um, and, and kind of just building on our last podcast, we had, I think, like 30 people there and 21 of them were, were docs and most of them were uh, primary care sports medicine physicians. Um, so, again, it's pretty cool seeing, seeing it not just from the rehab side of the house, but a lot of the docs were coming to this certification course. Um, and then after that, I, I got to actually do a course at home in San Antonio, which is beautiful. Slept in my own bed before having to go to a course. And um, that, that was a cool one here. Uh, had people from all over the country, which is good to see that, that people are willing to come to our, our beautiful city here. Um, and, and the good thing about that course, we had uh, Dr. Brian Irving from LSU, who's, who's one of the mitochondrial experts in, in the world. He, um, he brought some of his PhD folks along with him because we're doing mitochondrial research with BFR. And, and he was able to get up and, and chime in on some, some pretty cool things with the physiology side. It's always nerve wracking, man, when you got these hardcore physiology guys sitting in on these courses and you're watching them take notes and you're, you're, you wonder if they're just calling bullshit on everything that you're that you're doing but but anyway yeah. so, so that's that's our last and then uh, i'm off next week to, to portland maine gonna go eat some lobster <laughs> how, about, how about you kyle what have you been up to man um i did a course at a place called henry mayo out in valencia california so just actually right down the road for me just i got to sleep in my own bed kind of like you johnny um it's a it's a cool spot um it's in an old spectrum club and spectrum i don't know I think maybe they're national. I, I just know Spectrum from being out here, but yeah, we um, they're, they're typically a really kind of high-end fitness club. And um, <clears throat> so they've re- revamped this place. They got physician offices in there, a big community gym. They do a lot of community education. Their, their biggest community education thing is uh, rattlesnake rattlesnake training or, or snake snake bite training of some <laughs> sort. <laughs> they, they didn't they didn't know. They've been trying to like get the word out about health and wellness and resistance exercise and the thing that took off was snake snake bite training but um they have a cool little conference room and a nice big pt clinic there and and so we did a we had a good group of people from from their facility and then um some other kind of affiliated clinics from that area then um then i've been kind of busy locally actually i'm consulting with our local high school baseball team and so i've been helping them with some stuff spoke to their parents yesterday had a meeting with our sheriff's department for the injury prevention program that I help manage out there and kind of working, looking at working with our local um, uh, recreation and park district on a big senior center that they're starting to plan and build very soon. So trying to figure out how, how can we, our clinic kind of help with that in terms of just healthy aging, that, that sort of thing. And then Friday I head out to Kansas city um, to do a course at a place called true move. And I am really excited to eat some Kansas city burnt ends, um, in brisket. Cause they talk a lot of noise oh, about their barbecue. Out there. And, yeah. and I, so I'm coming to find out if it's the real deal or not. I'm coming in hot and it better not disappoint. Well, we, we, uh, there's only one place in this country to get barbecue and that's in the, the beautiful country I, of Texas. I, I, I would agree with that. So. All right. Well, cool. Yeah, that's awesome out in Kansas City. So looking forward to yeah. how that one goes. So what about you, Zach? Um, uh, what, two weeks ago, I was up in uh, Indianapolis at an API uh, up there. And then um, just this past weekend, and I did a private course um, in Atlanta with a, with a big hospital group on uh, Northside. So, again, kind of pretty nice to be able to sleep in your own bed and go to the course. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, and then, uh, coming up next weekend, 
uh, doing a course down at Mercer University in Macon. And then um, I believe the following weekend after that, or two weekends after that, I'll be up in Baltimore and then uh, up around Columbus and then up in New York City. So, well, typical road warrior you are. Yeah. Well, it's cool, too, that uh, the hospital group in Atlanta seems like a pretty big health system there. So getting more of these these hospital systems on board is beautiful. Yeah, it's uh, one of the largest um, in Atlanta, for sure. They have uh, hospital campuses um, throughout the metro. So Nice. Ben, what about you, man? Yeah, I uh, haven't had a whole lot of travel recently. I, you know, got to hang out with you for the San Antonio course. Um, then I left. Best day of your life. Absolutely. I mean, it always. <laughs> uh, yeah. I just did that in the rain, didn't you? Wasn't it, wasn't it, wasn't it just outside in the rain? Yeah. Well, we actually took boats to the course. You yeah. Know, it was, okay. It was flood, flooded enough here in San Antonio. You could just, uh, <laughs> you know, boat or, boat or swim your way there. Um, but then I, I left to go to El Paso and, and did a course for a group called El Paso Physical Therapy Services. Um, so a good group over there, um, had a, a few clinics represented and had a course with them. And then, uh, I leave this, this coming Friday to go present at the Florida PT Association conference. So I'll be doing a, a two hour talk over there this, this coming Saturday. Did you do that awesome. one last year? With that, that was uh, I was supposed to do that one last year, but the hurricane that hit them actually canceled the conference. Uh, okay. Um, so they they rescheduled for this year. Nice. Um, then I head up to Chicago to do a course with Illinois Bone and Joint the next weekend, which is a, a monster orthopedic group, right? Monster orthopedic group. They're uh, they're close to a hundred orthopedic surgeons out of the same same billing source. Wow. Yeah. So that, that's pretty cool. Uh, that's that's yeah. a big part of the Chicago market. And, and we work with every Chicago sports team and, and all the college teams there, too. So um, kind of blanketing Chicago with BFR, which is pretty cool to see. Way to go, yeah. Windy City. Yeah, <laughs> Kyle, speaking of rain, man, we so we uh, are, are moving into Taiwan, and, and we had our trainers come from Taiwan, and they flew in Friday night to San Antonio, straight from Taiwan and, and had to get up and come to the course and, and they hit the like the flood of the century coming in and they were in like 30 minutes late looking like drowned little puppies just soaking wet um, <laughs> <laughs> then they turned around and jumped on a plane and flew with Ben to El Paso then flew back to San Antonio their flight was delayed like all day and then we had to, yeah. to finish up our training so these, these poor guys I just heard back from them I, I don't know if they just went back home and died or what but but they're good so <laughs> But, but yeah, the international um, seeing BFR move around is great. So Taiwan is is starting up. Um, we we just had a course in London over over the weekend, um, and Stephen was with Arsenal on Tuesday, and and Susan did one up in in Canada. So um, definitely not just a U.S. thing right now. It's 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 moving clinically all over the place. Um, so anyways, that, that's cool, man. Well, welcome back to all your, all your, all your homes, fellas. Today's topic, we're talking about anabolic resistance. And this is something that, that is super fascinating. It's something we should be taught in school. Um, it's, it's fairly kind of a new topic. Um, and, and so, you know, it's going to maybe take some time to catch on to get into our curriculums, but it's this question of, of what happens to muscle during periods of disuse. And, and so you ask people that, you know, 
why does muscle go away so quickly when you're in a, in a disused state? And, and so we, we haven't really known the answer. You know, the easiest answer was, oh, well, it's, a, it's disused. You don't know. It's like a gravity thing, whatever. The muscle just seems to go away. But if, if we know a pathway, um, then maybe we can find a solution. And so is there something that changes during periods of disuse that, that we might have an answer for? And so that's where these anabolic resistance studies happen. So I don't know. Um, so one um, of you guys kind of break away with what, what you, how those studies are designed. So maybe, Zach, you want to take it away of like what an anabolic resistance study looks like from a design aspect? Yeah, so what it is is you basically just try to uh, – the studies that have been done, uh, we have uh, mobilization studies of one knee um, and then basically decrease in activity um, and basically looking at a – when they, the immobilization studies are looking at side-to-side -side differences to see the effect of what immobilization does or this disuse does on one side of the body versus the other. Um, and they'll do that for a period of time, pretty, the pretty common um, – protocol that's been done is about two weeks of immobilization, and then they'll um, take a look at protein synthesis, uh, take a look at fat-free mass of the thigh, um, and then strength as well has been measured, and then the, the uh, reduction in activity has been basically a, a similar type protocol where they look at um, insulin resistance, a change in protein synthesis, fat-free mass, and then um, uh, VO2 as well, actually. Right. And so there's really two two parts to the protein synthesis equation, net protein balance in its simplest form that we can look at it that's being affected. And so that's, does protein synthesis go down when you're in a period of disuse or does more protein breakdown happen when you're in a period of disuse? And so you guys kind of expand in on, on what we see from those studies of, of those two things. I mean, just tell me which one it is. Do we have more breakdown or we have less synthesis? And then we need to go after ways we, we can change it. Yeah. So looking at it, I mean, we, we don't really have enough information to show the increase in, in protein breakdown. Um, but we, we can definitely see a decrease in protein synthesis. Um, so, you know, kind of setting aside protein breakdown for a minute because we don't have enough information there. We definitely know that protein synthesis goes down, and it looks like that may be one of our big targets that we we can have an effect on from what the research shows on the the converse side with exercise, figuring out a stimulus that we can we can get to that people can tolerate that can make a change there for protein synthesis. Right. And, and so I think that's the key points here. So these studies are done in healthy so far. So we really don't have the data in, in an injured population of, of what happens during periods of disuse. Do you have less synthesis? If so, how much less do you have? Do you have more breakdown? If so, how much more? If, if we can measure that, that's probably you know, difficult to measure. Um, but what we do know is that there is a decrease in synthetic rates. If you immobilize a healthy individual for 10 to 14 days, we see that muscle protein synthesis drop. And so um, do you guys have the numbers of, of what that means from a decrease in protein synthesis percentages and then what that means in loss of, of true muscle mass and strength? Yeah, so, I mean, it's, it's upwards in the immobilization studies, upwards of 31% over a period of two weeks um, only on the immobilized side. So the and that's the, that's the important thing I think Ben was hitting on was that that non-immobilized side really doesn't see a change at all. Um, and then, you know, we're seeing upwards of about a 
23 to 30% change in strength as well. Uh, that, that all the, the loss of that protein synthesis goes to, um, about roughly 350 grams of muscle, uh, 10% fat free mass out of the thigh. So pr- pretty, pretty significant amount of muscle loss, um, in a period of two weeks, you know, and we always, we talk about that, about the size of the human heart. So I put it into perspective and I'm like, dude, that's the size of your fist in a period of two weeks out of the, out of your thigh. It's a pretty significant hole that we have to dig out of. Yeah. No, I think that's crazy. And, and I think that was Michael Rennie's study that, that pointed out that it was, you know, close to 300 grams of, of, of muscle tissue loss. And, you know, again, not using the freaking metric system as an, an American, I have no idea what that even looks like, but, um, um, yeah, a, a surrogate's being the, the human heart or, you know, maybe even a little bit bigger than the size of your fist. You can tell your patients in a, in yeah. a healthy state, not even after injury or surgery, yeah. you're going to lose that much muscle, um, just from, yeah. from not being able to use your limb for, for two weeks, what that mean doctor did. And so that's been our problem is we just kind of sit and watch this, this slow train wreck happen of muscle dump, muscle dump, muscle dump. And it, and it goes away rapidly. Um, and so I, I think what's, what's also fascinating is it's not only during disuse, um, or, or not just, just use, but not during just complete immobilization where you're not using a limb, but, but even when you have reduced activity, um, there, there's studies out there, right. That have shown even walking less, you start to roll into anabolic resistance. Yeah, absolutely. And, and believe it or not, the, the change in protein synthesis is, you know, 26% compared to 31. So, I mean, you're, you're right there. Um, it, that translated to, uh, 4% or yeah, 4% fat free mass out of the, uh, out of the thigh after that. So simply just by reducing how much you walk, they, they reduced it to, um, about 1400 steps. And there was two studies, um, young and the elderly. So similar effects. Yeah, it's crazy. So, you know, your patients may be down for the first week, especially if they had a big surgery or something like that. They're really going to anabolic resistance. So their, their protein synthetic rate has gone down and then maybe they slowly start to move a little bit more over the ensuing weeks. And, and then they're still kind of stuck in this anabolic resistance cycle. Um, and, and it keeps going down and, and it's evident, you know, you're, you're in that cam boot after like an Achilles repair or something, you take it off at six weeks and, and, and the muscle is, is completely gone. You always use this analogy. You got a tibia for a freaking muscle. Um, and, and that's the muscle dump. Dr. Bradley Lambert, um, who's one of our research colleagues, that, that's his term that he's, he's used for it is, is that the body goes into a muscle dump. And it seems to be worse after injury based on some early, early pilot work that, that he's looking at. So what, what he's doing is actually trying to repeat these studies post-surgically to see if, if the changes might be worse. And, and it sounds like they might even be worse. So we even have a, a harder situation than, than even in these healthy models. And, and a lot of this early work, you know, this was NASA non-weight bearing stuff, 30 days, you know, head down type activities and just watching what happens and, and this, this kind of muscle drastic change that goes into effect. Um, so, so that being said, we, we definitely have a protein synthesis problem. And, and it's crazy because now we have from some of the top top dogs in, in the world who know themselves around some muscles, Stu Phillips and Michael Rennie and, and, and Van Loon or Per Argard, all these guys are, have been pointing out these anabolic resistance studies. 
and basically handed it to us on a platter from rehab of like, look, this is what happens during tissues. You guys got a, a protein synthesis issue. So there's, there's only a few things we can do to try and combat that. So, um, would it kind of, you guys touch on some things that we could do, not just BFR, but you know, it, it kind of rolls into our expert today of, of ways that we can drive a protein synthetic rate, or at least try and slow this terrible train from happening. I think you, you really kind of have two options. It's either eat protein because we know just the ingestion of protein will activate that, that muscle protein synthetic pathway, or it's move around and exercise in some form or fashion. I, I know when I talk about this, I, I have to kind of make things work in my head. And to me, it's, it's all about signals and our body kind of being this extremely efficient machine and <clears throat> when we go through these periods of disuse there's just the muscle has no signal telling it what the heck to do you know the, the signal is a lack of signal um and so it just kind of adapts to that you know just like we're trying to get our folks to do stuff in clinic um via bfr or or, or heavy resistance training to to tell that muscle to grow too often we're giving it this signal to just kind of waste away and it does that a lot faster than, than we can put it on. So we really kind of have to make sure our folks are getting in their protein, which is challenging, I think, because for so many of us, I know it's hard for me just to kind of try to teach people about that because too often you get them and it's already kind of gone away anyhow, you know? Um, and so you're trying to write the ship and the ship seems like it's already kind of sunk. Um, and so, like you said, Johnny, like really needs to kind of get into schools and almost we need to see this information getting into the uh, medical education for orthopedists and that sort of thing as well. So that these interventions can happen early on um, and these people not just be drinking a little insure every so often when they're in, in the hospital, you know. Yeah, because it's probably way worse for the elderly. Right. And so yeah. and, and, and that's, yeah. you know, if you if you talk to these guys or, or read their work they really feel that this is sort of this gateway to sarcopenia. Um, the anabolic yeah. resistance just right. builds over time. The muscle becomes in more insensitive to protein. And next thing you know, uh, your, your muscle just basically starts to reject protein synthetic rates and, and you're dumping muscle. And, and that's what we see with the elderly. They just lose muscle over time. And, and that is a whole host of other problems. And that's not just the, the loss of power and potential fall risk, but with the loss of muscle, you've lost the ability to soak up glucose. You lost the capillary beds, so you get prehypertensive and things like that. And so I, I think from the most basic standpoint then is this whole discussion on, look, you're dropping protein synthetic rates. The number one thing you can't do is ignore your macros here from a nutrition standpoint. And the number one macro that we have to have this discussion on is protein uh, during a period of disuse. And, and, and it's just kind of like, it's not even like mentioned at all, typically, from from our side of the house. You know, you you if you're dealing with these elite athletes and we're talking with the teams, they're they're pretty much always on it. Like, oh yeah, dude, we, we have to talk with them right off the bat, and you know, we're making sure they're getting their stuff. Even even some of those guys, though, I see they're, you know, the athletes are worried about their cosmesis and cutting calories and things like that when they're during periods of disuse, which is probably the wrong thing to do. Um, but but man, your your elderly total knee patient who might already not have a, an appetite, might not like to take in protein, 
um, and, and it's maybe on narcotics or something, which is even decreasing more of, of the, the want to take in good nutrition. They're probably the ones that need it the most because they're, they're the most insensitive. Uh, but they're the ones that no one's even talking to about this. So do you guys, I mean, I know I'm preaching the choir here, but do y'all typically in your clinical setting in a, in a post-operative patient or a post-injured patient have at least a discussion or a handout or, or break it down to, this is how many grams per kilogram I think you should do and spaced out during the day. And it's in, we'll talk deeper with this, with Dr. Tipton in, in our interview, but what, what's y'all's perspective? I know, I know I do. It's, it's, it's like I was saying kind of earlier, it, it can be challenging. Um, so you, you almost need some sort of visual to give to people. And I, I use that, that handout Trisha sent us a while back, which is, really helpful in terms of just seeing different foods and how much of that food has the right amount of protein and leucine mm-hmm. and those sorts of things. I, I know early on when I was really trying to be better about teaching this to people, I, I had one guy come back and he <laughs> somehow he decided, I told him he should only eat protein. And he was like, Kyle, I was, I was constipated for like three or four days. trying to do. <laughs> like, like, wait, wait a minute, man. Like, let's walk back this. And so in talking to him, he was telling me what he was doing. I'm like, Oh my gosh, no, this, okay. No, don't stop eating other things. That's not what I'm telling you. So, um, you just never know what people are, are hearing from you, you know? Uh, yeah. <laughs> Same thing, Zach, at your place. Yeah, so we'll, I'll kind of casually mention it and, and talk about it, and if they have further questions, um, the, I think the tricky thing is um, kind of staying in your lane, so to speak, with different professions. Uh, yeah, that, that, that's the tricky thing with giving nutritional. I I would consider giving nutritional advice, and so that I would say that that's the struggle um, with, with kind of elaborating too too much on that. Yeah, and I agree. And so, an APTA put out some recent guidance and saying that we we are in our lane discussing nutrition with patients, but we don't need to start acting like we're dietitians. And and so, yeah, you know, in today's yeah. day and age, everyone's a freaking expert and and can unfortunately Google all sorts of stuff and, and then start to get a little bit crazy. But in, in our interview with Kevin, you know, which is pre-recorded. Um, it's, it's basics, you know, it's like, look, I'm just, this is the basic guidelines that we know. And, and I'm just talking about you getting in, you know, a proper amount of, of, of protein and, and a proper amount of, of your micros and things like that. And here's what you should probably try to avoid. So I think it's even just having that conversation to get it in the, in their ear. And then, you know, I know yeah. like, like HSS, they have a, you know, a, a dietitian that's a consultant that's a, a pay-for-service type of thing. And, and then if the patient's like, man, I'd, I'd like to actually learn this on a deeper level, then, well, here's a, a dietitian that you can, you know, pay and maybe get an, an evaluation done and they can set up a plan for you. So some people might have that luxury. We had, we had a Tricia who was just a freaking the most opinionated, hardcore dietitian in the world. And, and she, she put us over the coals when she was walking around and seeing that we weren't discussing nutrition at all in the early days. With, especially after blast trauma. Um, and so she, she, she basically laid out for us, here's the basics I think y'all should talk about. And that's that handout, you know, Kyle, that you have that's in our, within our group. Um, but then, you know, beyond that, if it starts to get really where you're designing meals and things like that, that's beyond your lane. 
and 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 be careful moving into. I'm also done the dietitian. So that yeah. being said, nutrition. Then I I think we got to at least think about it. It should probably be more on our minds, and we don't. That's the first thing, because. If, if they're already in an anabolic resistant state, which means their protein synthetic rate is down, which means their body's trying to dump muscle, then if they're not doing at least the bare minimum to drive just normal protein synthesis, even though it's downregulated, it's going to be even worse. And, and then this, the next thing is we got to get them moving somehow. Um, and, and that's our, our biggest rub is – you know, ACSM, we talk about these guidelines, 65 to 70% and, and up of a one rep max is what's needed to make muscle quantity and quality changes. And so if you're below those thresholds, we're probably not doing a lot to, to drive this extra muscle protein synthetic rate. And, and so then we have people come in and, and they're doing glorified range of motion and mat exercises during this period, which, which isn't doing probably a, a damn thing. And, and I think from our studies that we've seen comparing low load exercise to BFR, the low load exercise from a protein synthetic standpoint is, is really the big loser. So that's, that's our, our next kind of, you know, I think coming forward is if we're rehab professionals and we're all of a sudden saying, we're going to have to be the muscle protein synthesis, the mTOR ninjas, um, and, and figure out the best ways to go at it. We talk nutrition, make sure they're dialed in, at least on the minimal level. And then we got to say, what's the what's the protein synthesis pills that we can give? Because there isn't a pill. It's basically, in our standpoint, from talking to our physiologists, you either have them lift ACSM guideline type loads or based on, you know, some 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 pretty good research that we already have with BFR and healthies, we lift light, but we put a tourniquet on them. And so just to touch base on, on a couple of those exercises or exercises, a couple of those studies, um, and we're going to go deeper into this and have some of the people that are actually involved in those studies on in, in some future podcasts here. But, but what have we seen when we compare BFR at low level exercise to the same low level exercise without a tourniquet? Yeah, we see basically that, uh, the, the muscle protein synthesis does not change or does not increase with just low-level exercise, whether that be, um, you know, in young folks. I believe the study was 27-year-old was the average, and then uh, in the elderly as well. Uh, and then uh, once we basically start including a little bit of blood flow, that fractional synthetic rate jumps to 46% in uh, young folks and then 56% in the elderly. So same exact exercises. Yeah, same volume, all everything's the same. The only thing we're doing is we're including a little bit of blood flow, and we get a huge spike in that. And then, um, you know, the big significant thing uh, of that, Johnny, is is the duration of that spike. You know, we're talking upwards of a lot of times that spike will last, you know, three plus to twenty four hours. So it's a pretty good window that we can manipulate that that the anabolic effects of the workout. Yeah, and that, and that's what's beautiful is. You know, if we see a spike at a three-hour time point, and then we see a second spike um, for, at that 24-hour time point, that means what you did has a lasting effect even when they're not with you. Um, and then one of the things we pointed out is at that point, their home exercise program is, is get your freaking protein in. Um, and they probably don't need to be doing these 30 different exercises a lot of patients get for home because if they're, if they're dumping muscle and those things aren't doing anything to – to help stop that muscle dump. Why are we, we making people who have busy lives do things like that? And, and if we do have a second mTOR spike, then, then that's probably the, 
their primary thing they need to do is just feed that spike. And, and what's interesting, and, and Dr. Lambert and I discussed this um, a couple of years ago when he came and visited us at the CFI. It's what we've been talking about with these other studies, you know, like these hematopoietic stem cell studies that we're doing. It's it's like these are what we see at these windows, you know. So we had a three-hour window that it was measured, and then we had a 24-hour time point that was measured, and there were spikes. We don't know what happened at 30-minute window, at two-hour window, at four-hour window, at 12-hour window, because we just can't do these tests that many times for one, they're expensive. And, and these are, these are pretty hardcore tests when you're, when you're measuring uh, muscle protein synthesis on people. So the interesting thing too, is what happens? I mean, you know, Bradley even threw it out. I mean, maybe who knows, maybe BFR all of a sudden made it just drop like significantly down at two hours. We don't know. We don't think so obviously because people seem to hypertrophy pretty quickly and pretty well with BFR, but there might be even more significant spikes that, that we're not seeing just because we haven't been able to see those those markers measured. So that being said, fellas, um, I think what we have to be able to, to think about as therapists is muscle protein synthesis is a big deal. Probably for most of our patients is a big deal during periods of disuse. It's probably a bigger deal if you're treating a, a sarcopenic, elderly individual who's greater than the fifth or sixth decade of life, who's really become intolerant to, to exercise and, and, and ingesting a protein to make adaptive changes. So we have to become much smarter and savvy at the mammalian target rapamycin complex one and, and muscle protein synthetic pathways uh, to, to try and reverse these effects. So two things that we do, obviously, are making sure that we have at least the initial conversation with getting in the proper protein boluses and, and, and not be lacking in other nutrients to help support this. And then secondly, you got two options. You need to either be able to tolerate enough load that meets ACSM guidelines that will make positive muscle changes that drives protein synthesis. If you can't do that from what we have currently, it looks like you're going to have to do those low-level exercise and, and probably need to get a tourniquet on. Um, and, and really, uh, what we're seeing more and more is, is maybe the, the earliest you can get it on, the better, um, even, even post-operatively. Um, it seems like it's a safe application, and we're seeing that we're getting it much closer to the post-operative window to try and slow this train down. Any other thoughts from y'all's end on, on the whole anabolic resistance talk? Yeah, I mean, one of the things that I think is is really interesting is from some of the research, it looks like you know these these single bout effects are, are not really what's driving the the long term change. Maybe we need a little bit more of the the education on you know how this additive effect seems to happen. We need to be doing this consistently and getting this protein synthetic change consistently, and then we need to be in this you know nutritionally fed state. For, for an extended period of time so we can really make sure these changes happen. And that's probably doing more to set us up for success than, than these single bout effects. Yeah, that's a magic question. We get that all the time in our research studies. What's the minimum amount we can do here? Can we do this once a week or once every other week? Uh, it's like, no, <laughs> we can't. And, and that's what's hard, you, you know, especially these big multi-center trials we have. I mean, we're looking at we're probably only able to say we can make people come twice a week for rehab in these, in these big trials. 
Um, so, so we're going to see from these, does, does a two times a week bout give us enough? And, and what we don't do in these trials is talk about nutrition um, with, you know, that's not part of, of the research protocol. So that's not something that, that we're able to just kind of ad lib talk with people because we don't want to bias either side. Um, so it's just going to be straight BFR, um, probably the two bout minimum. In, in something like the repair, the, the giant femur fracture trial or some of these ACL trials to see. But, you know, I, I think from our effect size uh, stuff we've seen from Jeremy's meta-analysis, you know, two to three times a week is, is definitely what you have to do from a, from a BFR perspective. Do you guys agree? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I agree. Yeah. It's kind of crazy, you know, like you think you want these studies to be designed, you know, like, things would be in a clinic in an ideal scenario and trying to put them in an optimal situation, but you just can't, huh? I mean, you kind of, you kind of have to control like those one, those variables that you can, but the nutrition, you can't really, unless you keep them around, I guess. Right. Right. Yeah. Well, yeah, that's the thing, you know, doing, doing this research, that's why we can't just always just look at a study and, 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 and take it as dogma because, man, it's, it's just yeah. so hard to, to set these studies up and, and mimic what happens in, in real life. And, um, you know, it's, it's, it's almost impossible. I mean, you, you gotta, you gotta pre-plan this protocol well in advance, which means I'm, I'm saying this is the exercises everyone has to do. They have to stick to this program no matter what happens. Right. And, and, and that never happens in the, in the clinical setting. And so right. you know, we will get, Hey, this person's like, well advanced beyond what they should be doing. Do they have to stick with phase one? It's like, yeah, unfortunately. And then the patient gets bored and then they want to drop out, yeah. you know, I, Hey, I'd rather just keep moving on. I got a life. So, um, you know, these smaller studies, it's not as big of a deal. When you're talking a couple hundred people, uh, it's a nightmare looking at all these different scenarios you deal with. So um, anyone that's an evidence monster and just, you know, just goes by what the evidence says is, is missing a vote because there, there's a lot of clinical um, knowledge that, that we also have to take into account. Uh, don't even get me on my soapbox on that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, cool. Any other thoughts, guys? Nope. Yeah, I, I guess my, my last thing would be with what Ben said, I, I agree. I think the big driver of the, the protein synthetic response is basically the, the addition of, of nuclei, and, and that's going to come over um, repeated bouts. So I think that's uh, ultimately the, the big thing that, you know, it's difficult to see, um, you know, definitely within a short period, but, um, you know, a longer duration of, of maybe – you know, two days a week and see what happens from that standpoint with the nuclei and then see the muscle protein synthetic changes from there. Exactly. You know what, in, in Jacob Nielsen's study, it was over three weeks, but it, it was a, a high frequency trial daily, right? It, it was in it, twice. It, a day. it, it wasn't. Yeah. It's a couple of days were twice a day. Uh, but the thing of that, the, I think one of the take home points from that, was we saw that the largest spike at training day eight. So we don't yeah. know. And that, that spike was upwards of 280 to 290%. So we don't know exactly when we start to really proliferate these stem cells. Exactly. Um, and, and, and so the earliest time point was at training day eight. So do we see something three days in 
And then, you know, some of the other studies are animal-based, but we see good retention of the nuclei that are added, even if they're brand-new nuclei added to the fiber. So I, I think that's, a, that's an important thing, too, especially when you start to look at the ACL study that was out there um, prior to surgery, six months after rehab. Um, you know, we start to see cross-sectional area hasn't uh, returned. We still have no effect on um, satellite cells. Um, six months after rehab. So, I mean, that's something that we know with BFR, we can manipulate we can manipulate it pretty fast. Right. And, and that's the big win. So we know these satellite cells that, that are basically myogenic stem cells that can become a new myocyte. Those are the regulators of, of long-term muscle growth. And so you're exactly right, Zach. If we add a few more of those, um, you know, after bouts of BFR into the muscle fiber, well, then the next time Grandma Smith takes in a bolus of protein, all of a sudden she's got more muscle protein synthetic rate right? because she's got more myocytes that are, that are able to do it. Um, and, and that's where we see actual hypertrophy uh, of, of a muscle fiber. So that's, that is, you know, you get a little bit deeper tip of the spear is, is the overall big goal because then also those myocytes contain other valuable things, you know, mitochondria content. Um, and, and we, we know from anabolic resistance from, from what Kevin was talking about, um, we see mitochondrial, density and content start to go down as well. So um, all big things, all all much more uh, podcast topics that we'll be getting into um, with some more of the experts and, and what we already know from, from the studies and our current work. So with that being said, fellas, I think we're going to wrap this up and I'm, I'm going to roll into my to my interview next with Dr. Kevin Tipton, who's going to drop some serious uh, knowledge bombs on us from clinical recovery. All right. So we'll finish up with our uh, interview with Kevin, and then we'll come back and answer a few uh, listener questions that were sent in. All right. Now we're moving into our interview with an expert section of our podcast today. And, and today, very honored and, and happy to have my my old friend here, Kevin Tipton, um, who who we were together um, in, in in the early days at University of Texas Medical Branch down here down here in Texas. Um, and then, and if anyone in our group was most likely to leave the U.S. and go to Europe, it, it was it was Kevin Tipton. Um, <laughs> he always had a, a European slant to him, which was awesome because I was always looking for people that would get up at the crack of dawn and go watch, uh, soccer games or, or football, um, in his area, um, at the local pubs. So Tim, Kevin, great to have you on, man. I'm going to do a quick, a quick bio, um, that, that we have, and I'm just going to read it out cause it's so impressive. So Kevin Tipton is a professor of sport health and exercise sciences, um, and leads the physiology, exercise, and nutrition research group at the University of Stirling in Scotland. His research explores the metabolic responses, particularly in muscle, to exercise and nutrition with an emphasis on protein, nutrition, and metabolism. The research that he does is focused on humans, including athletes. He looks at healthies and also in the clinical populations, which we really want to get into today. Um, he's an author of over 100 papers and book chapters and review articles. Um, he reviews for and serves on editorial boards and, and many scientific journals. Um, and his interest in exercise and science and nutrition extends the application of sciences of, nutri of science of nutrition to the athletic populations, including the military. And from that, he served on the USA National Academy of Sciences, the Institute of Medicine, Committee for Military Nutrition and Research. And he's helped develop sports nutrition consensus statements for the IOC, FIFA, FINA, and IAAF, and has served on the UK Sports Nutritional Supplements Advisory Board. 
When Kevin's not working, he enjoys walking in the Scottish Hills with his dog, Reaver. Now, Kevin, hold on here, man. The old Kevin I knew never walked anywhere. All you did was freaking run. So uh, is this the new old Kevin that, that has to walk nowadays? That, that's correct. Uh, about, well, about 12 years ago, I ruptured my Achilles, and I've, I've just never been able to – I don't have a good physio like you, Johnny, so uh -huh. I haven't been able to – to recover enough to get i've tried running tried to get back into it and every time i do i end up with a new injury it's never the achilles it's always some other compensatory thing so running is very difficult but uh luckily where i live it's awesome to be just up in the hills walking i, I believe it well you're, you're not alone man achilles are the uh the killer of professional athletes as well so it's a career ender so uh uh you, you know you're not alone don't don't feel bad so so kevin um if you want, if you can just kind of take me a little bit into your background, um, you know, I, I, you're an Auburn guy. I, I know that from your, from who you root for, but then, um, kind of when we were together there at UTMB, what, what you were primarily studying with and then whose lab you're in and then kind of where you've grown and, and become the Dr. Kevin Tipton. <laughs> uh, well, yeah, I, I, my PhD is from Auburn, but I actually did my PhD research at UTMB in, and I was in, in Bob Wolf's lab, uh, Robert Wolf, uh, who is one of the preeminent uh, uh, researchers in, in metabolism, including protein metabolism. And I was fortunate enough to, uh, to get a position there. And I did my doctoral work there. And then I stayed on as a postdoc there. And then he uh, appointed me as, a, as an assistant professor there. So I was there until 2005. And then I moved to England. I was in Birmingham, England and uh became a an aston villa fan and um then i was there for five years and then got the opportunity to come up here to scotland and i fell in love with scotland and had the opportunity to uh help develop and build what what we now call the physiology exercise and nutrition research group and we started almost from scratch and and now we've got a pretty good thing going so uh that's been been sort of my journey but um i'm very happy to be here in in bonnie Bonnie, Scotland. Nice. Yeah. You guys put in out prolific work up there, um, with your group and, and it kind of seemed to be, you know, there's these, these few kind of centers around the, the world right now that, that a lot of us are looking to, um, to guide us, um, a lot with, with nutrition and, and what we're looking at for muscle and, and protein intake and protein synthesis and things like that. And so that's kind of what I, what I want to get into today is because we're primarily coming at things from a clinical standpoint. And it'd be, if we have time, it'd be nice to talk about, you know, maybe some more of the, the non-clinical aspects of what you do, um, which I know is a lot. Um, but I, I, one thing, and you and I were kind of talking about this before we started, we, we aren't taught anything about nutrition um, or, you know, really muscle protein synthesis or macros or, or anything um, post-injury. But, but then also, you know, from a rehab perspective, most of our people are, are supposed to be there going through some sort of, you know, usually resistance type training. Um, and, and there's a lot of things we can learn just from the healthy studies. Um, but, but there's a real, a real gap, it seems like, in, in – in the healthy studies that we can look at in models and, and then really being able to pull up some clinical studies and say, you know, look, this is what we know. And this is, you know, based on this type of injury, maybe things that we should be looking at. Um, just kind of what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I, I agree. I, I mean, it's, it's clear that, that 
it's it's incredibly important and it's been overlooked for you know for a long long time the nutrition aspect i mean of recovery and and to me there's there are really two kind of uh aspects of recovery one is the immediate you know acute recovery when you're coming out of say the surgery or you've just been injured and and you're immobilized or you're 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 on your back and so then the focus is probably more to uh ameliorate the loss of muscle or the the impairment of of tendon uh structure and function uh that sort of thing and then you get to the point where you actually start the active rehab where as you say you're doing a lot of weightlifting etc and then in that situation i think it's probably the principles are are roughly similar to what you would you would apply to someone who who's just lifting weights to to gain muscle but it's it's that active that that immediate recovery part that we don't really know that much about and that from a nutrition standpoint a lot of what we do and recommend is based on extrapolating from other models that aren't aren't actually injury models because we don't have that much information from actual research in injured athletes. Uh, so we extrapolate from things like bed rest models or, or immobilization models in healthy volunteers, et cetera. And there are some different characteristics of those model uh, of an injury to, to those models, which may make a difference. And so clearly we need more research, uh, directly in injured athletes. Right. And, and I, I think there's two things that we have to kind of think about when we're in a, an acute injured state and, and that's this, you know, this anabolic resistance and, and what we need to do to maybe slow that train and, and, uh, the kind of muscle dump that, that seems worse. And, you know, we see those healthy models and it's like, man, that looks pretty bad, even in a healthy during disuse. And then clinically, you know, I mean, it's probably like you after, after six weeks, you take that cam boot off and you, you've got a freaking tibia for a calf muscle. Um, the body just seems to dump muscle. And, and so that we probably need to attack aggressively. And, but then there's this inflammatory phase. Um, and, and forever we're taught like stop the inflammation and, and, and go after that as much as you can. And, and now, you know, there's this big reverse where we're all saying, well, wait, 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 we think this is something we should probably let happen. It, it shouldn't be overwhelming or, or burdensome to the point that, you know, someone's in severe discomfort and it shouldn't be chronic, but we should probably not attack that right off the bat. So can you kind of talk about first your understanding um, from your colleagues and your work um, of, of the loss of muscle during disuse? And then maybe we can roll into talking protein and then leucine and things like that. Yeah, uh, the the loss of muscle during disuse is is primarily driven by, as you said, the anabolic resistance. That that means, of course, the resistance of of the muscle to anabolic stimulation, and that is primarily from you know protein and amino acid intake, of course. So, you for a given amount of of protein uh, ingested, the anabolic response to that is is diminished compared to healthy muscle when a muscle is immobilized or inactive. And so then the question, as you, as you said, is what role does inflammation play in that? And I, I couldn't agree more that I think in the past, uh, that inflammation as the bad guy was overplayed. Um, and, and as you say, if it does get to be a runaway situation where it's just, where it's just really, really bad and overwhelming, then yes, you got to dampen it. But when somebody says we've got to knock out the inflammation or stop the inflammation, I, I totally agree that, that that's got to be a mistake. 
but right. that's part of the natural healing process. Um, now, if it if it goes prolonged, et cetera, then yeah, you got to start thinking about other other things. I don't know how much that information plays in the loss of muscle. I don't think anybody does. If they do, they're you know I'm sure there's smarter people than me. Maybe they do, um, but it, it it certainly has to be some kind of that the inflammation, maybe uh, maybe excess oxidation, o- oxidative stress, something seems to be interacting with with the immobility to, as you mentioned earlier, to sort of exacerbate some of that muscle loss in an injured athlete, maybe relative to a healthy volunteer, you know, in a bed rest study or something. So I, I definitely think that there's something there and we just really don't know enough about it because a very, very limited amount of research in that area. Yeah. And, then, you know, the, we basically have either a, a downregulation of protein synthesis or an increase in muscle protein breakdown to be causing these problems. And, and, and it, you know, it seems like we're, we're pretty certain that during disuse, we have a downregulation of synthesis, but um, it, it's hard to know from these healthy models. I know it's hard to study truly, you know, how much breakdown there really is, but um, in an injured model, uh, it, it just seems like it's worse. So I, I'm, I really am wondering if there's more of a breakdown component that we're not able to, able to understand quite as well. Um, yeah, that, that's possible. Um, for sure, we, you know, I, I just published a paper recently on protein breakdown about six months ago. So in sports medicine, so we we tried to cover uh, protein breakdown. We didn't really cover it in injuries because, again, we don't really know much about it. Uh, it seems like breakdown doesn't play a major role uh, during immobilization in healthy people. It's possible that there there is some hints that maybe there's something going on in the first day or two with breakdown in a in an immo- a healthy person immobilized, but it's it it's very difficult to measure. The models that we use are are it's it's much easier to measure protein census, even though that's difficult enough, but. Uh, protein breakdown is just, it, it seems like it's, if it is a factor, it's a, it's a relative to census. It's a minor factor in healthy people. Now, does that change in injured athletes? You know, it's possible. It'd be interesting to try to try to look into that. Um, and there are some models you could try and, and maybe if healthy people are anything to go on, then it might be, you know, early on when breakdown might be more of a player than, than say, you know, a, a week or two after the injury. Right. Yeah. And it, and it might, you know, just the trauma, if this is a surgical case, the, just the trauma of surgery alone, um, might be playing, might be playing a role into it. What, you know, what's interesting, uh, a couple of, of our colleagues just put out in, in, uh, JBJS and JOR last year, um, that, you know, after you tear your ACL, the, the thigh muscle just changes and goes into this sort of fibrotic state almost, you know, right off the bat. And, and then at six months later, it, it still looks like it has this, you know, increased fibrosis. So even, even something like that might be just changing the cross-sectional area of the muscle in a, in a negative way. And, and why folks like yourself, you tear an Achilles and, and that calf muscle just seems to never want to respond more naturally. Um, but, but let's kind of get into the clinical nutrition side here of this. And so, Here's the problem, you know, someone gets injured, um, we have all sorts of protocols, you say this is a surgical case, and, and this is a way we want to address, you know, your recovery of range and trying to get the muscle to, to respond. 
Um, but as a clinician, we rarely talk to the patient about, you know, what's, what's your diet right now or your nutrition profile. And so I just kind of want to get some pearls here or key points. So one, one thing right off the bat, I was with a really elite NBA player who had a pretty significant injury, was going to be immobilized for a while. And, and one of the things he did was go into pretty severe calorie restriction because um, he was worried about cosmesis. And so, you know, his thoughts were, I'm moving less, uh, even went into to trying to be a vegan. Um, and, and, you know, this lack of energy that he was putting out in his mind was enough that he needed to almost go into this severe calorie restriction because he didn't want to get fat. So what are, what are your thoughts on energy intake after injury? Well, I, I think that his, his attitude is all too common, and, and I think that that's a mistake. Um, I, think, I think energy intake is, is potentially a problem for, from a muscle standpoint because if you are in a, a, an energy deficit, then protein synthesis is dampened. And obviously, if you don't want to lose muscle, you don't want to lower your muscle protein synthesis any more than you have to. So, so, and I've written this in my papers in, uh, several times, is that you've got to be very careful about energy intake. So, yeah, I think, I think it's a natural thing to say, hey, I'm not moving as much. I need to, to not eat as much. And I think you want to try to balance the energy intake with the expenditure as much as possible. Now, that being said, I've also had people mention to me, well, hey, if that's the case, then I'm just going to eat whatever yeah. so that I don't go into an energy deficit. And if I get a little bit fat, then I'll just work it off once I get over the injury. And then there is actually some evidence that eating too much will inhibit protein synthesis as well. So I think I think it's really important for the people who are looking after the athletes or the athlete uh, themselves to try to stay as close to energy balance as possible. Right. Yeah. And, and, and I think there's almost a, this continuum of, of the injury level that, that you have to think about as well from, from the worst side of, you know, the burn wards, um, th those folks just need a ton of energy because that's just so metabolically expensive on you. To, to high energy trauma where you where you have a, a long bone fracture and, and, and severe injury there, almost like a limb salvage case, all the way down to like an ankle sprain and, and a hamstring injury. Um, the, the amount of of probably nutrients your body needs changes based on the severity of the injury. Um, and we shouldn't just look at it. Well, this person's not moving, so we're going to we're going to restrict their calories. That being said, though, you know, I guess the macros matter. Um, if you're in this early phase and you're almost in a bed rest type state, um, cause you had a surgery or something like that, maybe, maybe looking more to, to your protein being your, your primary macro you're really worrying about. Um, what do you think on that? Absolutely. I, I think, you know, and of course it's what I study is protein and it's my, it's yeah. my bias. But I think it's pretty clear that protein intake is critical and that in that immobilization type of situation, uh, and especially if it's an energy deficit, that protein intake needs to be on the high side. Um, you know, I'd probably shoot for sort of two grams per kilogram per body mass as if I had to just throw out a number. Um, you know, somewhere around there would probably be where you'd want to be. Uh, so, yeah, it, it's very clear to me that protein is the one you want to concentrate on. And then you you balance the other macronutrients uh, after you've after you've got the protein sorted. 
And, and so that's, that's what I want to get into with you next. It, it seems like protein dosing is, is kind of moves through different ranges. And then we had a really good systematic review and meta-analysis that came out um, from a, a lot of your colleagues at 1.6, you know, during a resistance training um, looks like, looks like a good target. So I guess range wise as, as a clinician coming in, cause you get someone who might be a little wigged out. If you, if you tell them two uh, grams per kilogram, is there a range you think like 1.5 to two is, is kind of the target of, of a bare minimum or at least shoot for this. Yeah. Bare minimum. I'd say 1.5, you know, now to be fair, uh, male athletes, in their normal diet are going to be getting 1.5 anyway. Right. Now, if they're eating less then maybe it, that might, you know, they might have to think about it a little bit, but, uh, you know, that's 1.5, 1.6 is not a lot relative to what, when we do our studies and we're studying weightlifters, you know, it's, it, it's usually 1.6 to 1.8 is what they eat without thinking about it. And then the guys who are trying can eat more, but it's, that's not really that much. Unless, of course, if you go into an energy deficit or you, you're bringing the, the energy down to balance the, the lack of activity, then you might have to think about it. But, yeah, that's uh, – 1.5 would be – in my opinion, that would be minimal. Yeah, and it, but it's twice the RDA, and, and we deal with docs and, and you know, probably the group that needs this conversation the most is our, is our elderly sarcopenics, which – you know, in, in all in all reality, it probably crushes the amount of patient visits that we're seeing in, in most rehab clinics now, just because the baby boomer situation. And, and those folks, lots of times, you know, um, aren't, aren't this the last thing they're thinking about is is my protein intake. And so, um, I think that's important for clinicians to to realize that that those folks might be really low, and they're probably the ones that that might be more more um, insensitive to protein and, and maybe even need a higher dose, right? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it's, it's very clear that, you know, older people tend to eat less anyway, and then less protein for sure. Um, so yeah, I, I think that that's definitely something to, to consider is the age of the, of the patient and, and to look into what they are eating and then try to try to bump it up. Uh, you know, some of the, some of the research is, is suggesting that maybe 1.2 grams per kilo for old people for healthy old people. Mm -hmm. So I would, yeah, I would say try to get them to eat more if you can. Right. Now one, one trick to do of course is, uh, most people period and older people are even worse tend to really skew the balance of their, their protein intake throughout the day. And so they tend to eat not that much in the morning for breakfast, but then a bigger chunk in the evening for dinner. And it's probably better to balance that out some. Yeah. And try to try to get, you know, uh, sort of 0.3 to 0.4 grams per kilo, you know, at, at each intake um, throughout the day. Um, and, and then if you get four of those or five of those, then then you should be should be OK. So, you know, we're over here in, in the United States, Kevin, and, and all this metric talk, it, it's, it's making people really have to Google um, you know, the calculator, to, you, you know, the only, um, the only country that has been on the moon doesn't use the metric system and that's the U S. So, um, you know, we just need the rest of you guys to come on board with us. So you don't confuse us with these numbers here. Um, so, so yeah, I guess that's per dose. If, if we're to say grams, that, that would be anywhere from like 20 to 
to 40 grams range wise. is probably about what you'd want. Okay. And multiple so, times throughout the day till you get to that 1.5 to two. You realize grams is metric too, though. Yeah, I know, but I, I just wanted to make you feel <laughs> comfortable. <laughs> you know, I, I remember back in the seventies when I was a kid, just, I could not understand why the U S didn't go to metric even, even way back then. But, you know, uh, yeah. So we're you know, kind we're of talking, full of ourselves in case you didn't know. Yeah, no, that's why, you know, I'm, I'm happy <laughs> to be here. Uh, so yeah, we're, we're talking sort of, you know, 0.6, maybe 0.7, uh, grams per pound. If you want to look at it that way. Okay. And so then there's, there's also this, this leucine component, um, which, you know, until several years ago, I never really knew there was, there was any sort of one amino acid was, was better than the other. You hear like the bodybuilder lore of this one does this or that. Um, but I was working with the, with the seals one time and, the, and their nutritionist or dietitian who's now in the NFL, you know, I was talking with him and, and asked him, you know, what's one of the most important kind of nutrition things that he's always aware of, um, with these guys for recovery from injuries. And then he said he's, he's very, um, focused in on, on their leucine content along with, with, with their protein content. So can you touch base on, on why that amino acid is a little bit different and, and maybe important to make sure you're getting a good protein? Sure. Um, well, all amino acids are building blocks for protein as I'm sure you and your listeners know. So, the thing about leucine is it's kind of unique in the sense that it's not only a building block, it only not only goes as to be part of a protein in that, you know, amino acid chain, peptide chain, but it, it's also a signaling molecule. It actually, it actually can sort of stimulate the, the molecular pathways that result in protein synthesis and building muscle. So there's a concept called a leucine threshold that's thrown out there where you need to hit a certain level of leucine as quickly as possible from ingested protein, I mean, or amino acids. And then that triggers the system to the maximal level and allows for the maximum uh, stimulation of muscle protein synthesis. And, and so that's a pretty well-accepted concept, and, and that's why uh, you know a lot of the protein sources, the focus is on how much of that protein is made up of leucine and how fast that leucine gets into the system, into your body and, and goes to the muscle. Now, I've recently been working on a paper where it's not quite so clear in all situations that that leucine threshold uh, is the most critical factor. So there, there is a little bit of, in my mind, a little bit of doubt about the importance of it. However, uh, your, your, your SEAL and NFL uh, uh, nutritionist there has it right. I think in an injury standpoint that I think leucine is particularly important for overcoming anabolic resistance. And that is in with injuries, but also I think in older people as well. So I would, I would probably advise sort of, you know, aiming for the, the protein sources that have, you know, on the high side of the leucine, uh, uh, continuum so uh, the obvious one is you know everybody goes with his whey protein of course right but there are, you know other other types of animal proteins have have good sources and you know there are a couple of plant proteins which aren't too far off and, and what's the minimal threshold now is it 2.5 uh, you know what um i'm not willing to say because i don't <laughs> i think that we've i think that we've over over interpreted a lot of this stuff and i'm not sure with that in all situations that we know uh really what we're we're after 
Now, right. That's the number that's thrown around. So if you know if you want to go with what's commonly accepted, then that would be the number. But one of the things I, I keep coming back to is when this with this leucine threshold, the idea is that you want to spike this threshold or spike the leucine level to hit this threshold. However, that all the studies that have been done with that have been done with with liquid uh, with protein in liquid supplement form and not really in food form. Now, when we eat a meal, then amino acids levels don't really spike like that because you've got all sorts of other things come, you know, in, in together, uh, you know, other macronutrients, et cetera, fiber, that sort of thing. So I, I really do think that we need to, to, to have a lot more information uh, before we can start throwing those kind of numbers around. But that is the number that is bandied about. So, but, but if we get a good quality protein, we're pretty much covered. Uh, I, I, I think so. Yeah. I, I think that's the, the main goal is to, first of all, get enough of the protein and, and then think about the leucine level in the proteins. And then, I mean, it's not going to hurt anything, right, to, to try to aim for higher, for proteins with higher leucine content. Right. It, it certainly ain't going to hurt anything. Even if, even if it's not the end all to be all, it, it's not going to hurt. So why not? Right. And it's, Does that make sense? Oh, 100 percent. You know, but it, it's got to the point where we heard athletes talk about, you know, they're taking extra leucine on top of their protein and their waist shakes. And waist so, you know, that, that's that's going overboard. And, and too much protein probably isn't good. Well, it's probably not. I mean, so, you know, these amino acids all have all different transporters. And, and, you know, each transporter has a different combination of amino acids that it transports under different conditions. And, and so there's often competition for those transporters. So if you get an overabundance of one amino acid, it, then it might interfere with the, uh, with the other, with the absorption of the other amino acids or the uptake of the other amino acids into the muscle. So I, I think, yes, you got to be careful about, you know, taking too much of any particular amino acid. Okay. So let's, let's just sum this up here. I've got someone, they're down and out. They're going to be non-weight bearing for eight weeks. I want to really focus during this initial phase because they're, they're probably getting into some sort of anabolic resistance and their body's dumping muscle. Um, I'm, I'm going to discuss with them this 1.5 to, to hopefully potentially this two point, uh, gram per kilogram, uh, loading of protein with a good quality protein source and, and probably going to find a way for them to break that up to, to three to four meals a day would, would probably be a, a nice kind of guidance for them. Yeah. In fact, I'd, I'd probably go with four or five, um, four or five. Okay. you know, if you, if you can. And then of course, uh, if you buy Luke's, Luke Van Loan's studies, you know, they're, they're arguing that you want some at night yeah. and right before bed. I'm not convinced of that myself. Um, I, I think there's some question about it. But again, if if your patient can tolerate it, and a lot of people don't like to eat protein right before bed, uh, you know, maybe that's something to think about as well. I, I think there's a lot of doubts because it hadn't been properly uh, controlled, those studies. And, and Luke will acknowledge that if you ask him. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I think you're, I think what you just said is 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 dead on. And, and let me just can I just comment on on something that's not protein related, which can help. Sure. And and that's that's there seems to be uh, some evidence at least for a crossover effect. So if you have your right leg is immobilized, if you're if you're working out with your left leg, there seems to be some crossover to your right leg. And so you know I think 
there's a tendency for at least with some people and it's you know maybe not so much athletes because they're more disciplined but people who get injured and then they just don't do anything yeah whereas it's probably very important to to try to do exercise with other muscles in particular you know the contralateral limb and also there seems to be some evidence and this is from luke's lab as well that electrical stem can help immobilize muscles Right. And help help increase the uptake and utilization of pro or the amino acids from protein. So both of those are important things to think about. In addition to you know to to complement uh, the nutrition, the protein strategy that you just outlined. Right, and and that's why we also are, are very interested in this blood flow restriction stuff because. You know, you might come in and just do these kind of mad exercises, Jane Fonda's that are in the old days, they're, they're kind of wasting your time. Um, I believe more like range of motion than, than resistance training. Um, but if we can get like a little, a little weight on and a tourniquet, um, it, it, it's, it seems to change the whole ball game. And it's, we might be tapping into some of these pathways that are, that are closer to the heavy lifting um, type of pathways. So um, I, I think everything you said, and then also hopefully what we're looking at too, um, is best guided. So I don't want to keep pounding on protein here, but that, but that is your wheelhouse. So we'll stay with a little bit longer. What, what about, um, timing between each dose? You know, we, we, have, at our, at our place, the center for the intrepid wounded warrior project donated all these EAS shakes, um, that we had. And, you know, these guys, you'd see them get done. They do their, either their BFR training or, or rehab and they go grab a shake and pound it. Um, you know, and I'm like, dude, you're, you're like on your way to the chow hall. I'm not sure if you need a shake right now. And then I know you're going to go scarf down a bunch of food at the chow hall. So what, what would be your windows of dosing out these protein boluses? Yeah, there's a, uh, there is evidence. And this actually came from, um, I, I was, I sort of helped out with a study, but I'm not an author on the paper from when, when I was in Galveston back when we were playing, playing uh, footy together. Yeah. Um, it, so, and Mike Rennie was the lead on the, on the paper yep. and they, he very clearly showed that if you increase amino acid levels in the blood and that those amino acid levels just stay high, that protein senses will go up, but it'll come back down even when the amino acids levels stay high. So if you keep your amino acid levels just constantly high throughout the day, well, then you're, you're not, you're not going to get the, the maximum benefit from, from muscle protein senses uh, stimulation. So yes, you, I think you're right dead on that you want to space it out, you know, probably at least a couple hours uh, to, to allow those amino acid levels to come back down again. And then when they go up, they spike that protein senses again, as opposed to where it gets refractory if, it, if amino acid levels stay high. And there's a uh, Phil Atherton in, in Nottingham has, has put a if you want a nice buzz phrase for it, it's a muscle full effect is the way he, hmm. he describes that. Yeah. So that, that's perfect. And, and, and I think that's guidance. We also need to let our patients know. And, and, and I think especially with our elderly, potentially sarcopenic patients who just might not want to eat that much. Um, I think always being able to go to, to some sort of liquid protein, um, especially during the early phases of rehab is, is, is also a nice angle to give them that, you know, if you can just try and drink this for me and, you know, this is trying to change their mindset a little bit, um, has been helpful from what we've seen. So, uh, yeah, definitely. And, and, you know, I have a personal, uh, interest in that right now. My, my mother had hip replacement surgery about 10 days ago. So she's, 
you know, I'm trying to get her to eat yeah. more protein and to, and to spread it out. And, um, so yeah, it's all, it's always a challenge. It's a challenge because, you know, they, they usually don't like to eat and then they're on narcotics, which, you know, does all sorts of things to, to your appetite. And, and so, um, it definitely is a challenge, but, but, but one we need to take on. So in, in this early phases, we're still acute here. Is there any nutrient that, or, or thing that you would say, I, I probably wouldn't push this or, um, I would maybe avoid this, you know, so, so maybe something that we're trying to allow inflammation to happen. Is there any real nutrient that, that that's just a, such an inflammation destroyer that, that you would say, don't push this during the early phases? Um, well, I mean, I, I suppose it depends on, on when you say push it, I'm going to interpret that as meaning, you know, just lots and lots. So, you know, lots and lots of antioxidants or lots and lots of say omega-3, uh, maybe, maybe you don't want that. Now to ha- some of it, you know, smaller amounts or moderate amounts, I, I think, you know, gotta be fine, but, and, and sort of, you know, I know that back in the day, the first thing that would happen when I would get injured was the orthopedic surgeon would say, here, take lots of, you know, uh, NSAIDs. Mm-hmm. And I think that's, it's pretty clear now that that's not the best idea. So I, I think, you know, it sounds boring, but I think things in moderation <laughs> is really the way to go and to, to not go crazy with any particular nutrient, uh, right. you know, including protein. I mean, but protein should be the focus. Right. And, and then there are maybe potential injuries where we're, we're trying to slow the, this inflammatory cascade and, you know, maybe a traumatic brain injury or something like that, where we don't have strong, strong evidence, but, but that might be something where we're looking at potential nutrient strategies as well to, to take that inflammation down. So depends on the injury. Yeah. It's the, the, TBI thing is really interesting. There's, I know that there are a number of trials going on, you know, with different nutrients and, and, you know, uh, omega threes seem to be the first choice. And for, for, you know, some good reason, there's some pretty clear clinical preclinical studies in rats, et cetera, where there's success with omega threes with curcumin, Mm -hmm. uh, even creatine seems to have some for, for TBI. Um, the, the question is, the assumption is that the damage from the TBI is driven by inflammation, and I'm sure that's a contributory factor, but I think there's more to it than that. Um, actually, one of my colleagues here has been doing quite a bit of work on, on TBI, and I'm starting to get involved in a little bit of nutrition stuff. He, he's not a nutrition person, so we're trying to collaborate and get some going. Um, so we got an exciting study that we just got funded in ex-rugby players. So uh, we're looking into some nutrition aspects of TBI there. Um, but yeah, I, 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 again, I think what, what you said made me think we really have to be careful about individualizing these kind of approaches. And I know that's the difficult thing, but that I think is important. And it goes back to our energy balance uh, discussion that we really have to think about what is this person's situation? How much can they do? How much energy are they expending? Are they completely you know, immobile, nothing's moving, or do they, you know, are they running around on crutches, which is if they do a lot of crutching, that's energetically expensive. So, and I think that we have to, to, and and also the inflammation thing, you know, as you said, if it's a really traumatic situation, uh, then, you know, that inflammation is probably going to be more 
and last longer. And so we got to consider that as opposed to, you know, a sprained ankle, which is probably maybe, you know, maybe it doesn't last quite so long. It might not be quite so systemic. I, I think all those have to be taken into account. And that is the challenge because that makes the, the treatment that much more difficult, doesn't it? Right, for sure. Yeah, it's, it's definitely moving targets here. So, you know, and I, you've put this out in your papers. It, it seems like the number one thing to avoid is nutrient deficiencies first um, and, and have that conversation as, as a clinician with the patient. Absolutely. Um, you know, that's very clear. What if, if nothing else, make sure they get ample uh, nutrients, including all the micronutrients, et cetera. So I, I think that's critical. Um, but uh, you know what, that's really, most people don't ask me that they, mo they mostly ask me, what should I give them? Yeah. Not what should I avoid? You know? Yeah. Yeah. And well, it's almost like we need a checklist manifesto here, you know, and we're, we're going through our evaluation and screen with the patient and, and then we just have a nutrition, nutrient checklist of, you know, okay, tell me what you're getting. Are you, are you able to do this, 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 and this, and, and go down? Because again, as clinicians, it's just like, geez, okay, what, how am I even supposed to, to focus on, on what a, a micronutrient even is? You know, I mean, most people are hopefully getting that, but, but you never know. I mean, I've, I've told this story many times. We had a guy who was doing terrible, um, in his recovery, uh, a service member, and we discussed his nutrition with him and, uh, he was eating half a tub of strawberry icing for breakfast and he'd eat the other half for lunch and you can't make that crap up, man. And, and he, he told us, um, you know, he's doing better. He's working on his nutrition because his mom told him to get more fruits in his diet. So he switched from vanilla icing to strawberry. Um, <laughs> it's like, and, and so we've got, we've got no chance with that kid in everything we're doing. We're just watching him waste away until we even ask that question. It's like, Oh God, dude. All right. So we got a, we got a big hurdle here with you. Um, <laughs> but I mean, do you like you basic kind of outline or structure of, of how you would go at it? If you're a clinician speaking to a, you know, top rugby player in the, in the rugby union and just want to say, okay, I want to make sure you're dialed in, do you know, what you would do as an approach? Yeah. I mean, I suppose your story, uh, illustrates a concept that, you know, I still struggle with sometimes, which is you assume that everyone has a certain basic knowledge of nutrition and it's, it, you know, it's just not true. Um, you do get a lot of really, as you said, dialed in athletes and, you know, I'm sure soldiers, uh, uh, military people and older people, some of them are really switched on, but a lot of them just have no idea about anything. And so then I think maybe that's the first step is you, you try to establish what, what they do know and, and what they do understand about, about nutrition and, and things. And then you can, you can go from there as far as, as far as instructing and educating them to what they need. I, I think it, I would say, you know, we've discussed it, that the first protocol is to see, make sure they get enough protein uh, and to balance their energy. And, and as you say, that's a moving target as they, as they go from, uh, you know, being flat on their back to starting into rehab, you're going to, that's going to change. Um, and so you need to keep up with that if, if, if you're really going to be doing the, the best job, uh, and, and then make sure they do get enough of the other nutrients, including carbohydrates and fats. Um, you know, it's, 
for some athletes who are, in, you know, very conscious, they they may just try to cut fats way down to a certain level, but they're uh, that's too low, and that could be a problem. Mm-hmm. Um, but mi- micronutrients try to try to encourage them to, you know, obviously the first protocol will be eat fruits and vegetables, as you mentioned earlier. But if not, then you know, possibly think about a, a multivitamin if you have to. Although that's not ideal, especially given the that in the states it's totally unregulated. And you don't know. You need to find a a good multivitamin source that that does actually have the vitamins in it that it says it does, or vitamins as we say over here. <laughs> Weirdos. <Yeah. laughs> I still haven't I still haven't adapted to that one. I got to be honest. Uh, yeah, and so I and and again I think it, you you change the nutrition as the situation changes for that, that person coming off of the injury or the surgery, you know, it's going to change and you need to adapt the nutritional uh, component of their recovery along with those, with those changes. And as, as we said, that's the challenge. Yeah, for sure. And, And so we get this too, especially now working with all these, these pro and college athletes and in the military it was just as bad. Everyone wants to know what supplement should I take? Um, typically we, we just tell them to stick to, to, to whole solid foods, but, but is there any supplement stuff you've seen from a, from a recovery or, you know, clinical recovery as well as athletic recovery that that's kind of hot on your list? You know, creatine's kind of one of those that seems to have stood the test of time. Yeah. I, I think, I think the first thing that I'd like to mention is, especially for the athletes that they need to be really careful about supplements and especially in the U S where it's really, really poorly regulated that a lot of supplements have uh, banned substances in them. Mm-hmm. And so there are, there are certain organizations which have, you know, which will uh, certify which supplements are, are good, which batches are good. So, you know, I would encourage, you know, athletes and nutritionists to make sure that that's the case to stay away from, you know, finding some, Nandrolone in your protein supplement or something, um, which which does happen. Uh, creatine for sure. Uh, when you get to the the you know the recovery the the muscle building stage, then creatine works. Um, there's no question. Uh, uh, protein, you know, a, as you mentioned earlier, in some situations, say in particular with older people, maybe a liquid protein supplement is a good thing to to introduce. And and you mentioned uh, the one fella who you know, wanted his protein right away and then go to the mess hall. Uh, you know, so maybe, maybe a protein supplement's okay, but to space it out, you know, as, as we talked about before. Right. Um, other than that, I, I am not big on, on other supplements. I think, you know, for example, HMB has a lot of attention, but if you really look at the, the data in the well done studies, there, there are some studies from one lab in particular, which are really, really dodgy. And, uh, uh, and it's, I think HMB is given way too much um, uh, credit. And in fact, uh, Stu Phillips just published a paper recently, which, which pretty much, in my mind, put the nail in the coffin for HMB. So yeah. I wouldn't waste my money on that one. Um, I wouldn't waste my money on individual amino acids. Uh, you know, we published a paper, gosh, last year, uh, yeah. which supported the notion that you know, if you if you just are taking branch chain amino acids or just leucine alone that you don't get the full response. So, you know, you want a full, uh, at least all the essential amino acids in any particular, if you're going to have a supplement, make sure that that's the case. Um, but yeah, I, I, 
I don't put a lot of stock in supplements. I, you know, I think your approach of recommending food first is, is the key. And, and maybe if you're trying to build muscle, that creatine could be, could be something to consider. Right. I agree. Possibly, possibly, you know, there, there is, and, and I'm not willing to, to go out on a limb here, but there, there, there may be some argument for omega-3 fatty acids, uh, during, um, during the muscle loss period, you know, uh, in, in rats and, and other models, it seems to be, maybe there's something going on, but in humans, we, we don't have the data yet. And, um, so I'm not, I'm not convinced of it, but there are some hints that maybe omega-3 fatty acids, uh, may help ameliorate some of that muscle loss. Yeah. I've seen that. And we have a, we brought a dietitian in who, who was super good at, at Center for the Intrepid. And, you know, she would always tell our, our folks that, you know, maybe your first protein choice, if you can get it, is salmon. I mean, you get, you get kind of everything in one bundle there, your omega-3s, your, your aminos, and, and, you know, tastes pretty good. Yeah. In <laughs> fact, we, uh, we're writing up a grant to try to look into that in particular. We have a, at our university has a, one of the major, uh, uh, departments is the Institute of Agriculture. And so salmon is a big thing. And we've been trying to, to put together a grant with them to, to look into salmon in particular compared to sort of other protein sources. And, and then I guess the easy thing after that is what really to avoid. And you got to have this conversation. I just had a, an MLB team calling about a guy that that's a, a chronic, uh, nicotine user and, and he actually smokes too. And so, you know, Obviously, avoid the the bads if you can. Um, smoking and even put this in your paper, which is which is totally different than the old Kevin Tipton I know is 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 avoid alcohol um, <laughs> <laughs> during recovery. But but those are conversations we have to have too. Um, you know, these are the things that you should be thinking about ingesting. These are the things you should probably really want to avoid, especially during this recovery phase. And maybe that's why I never played in the World Cup. You know, I just... no, no, there was a whole host of other reasons. Wouldn't <laughs> hey, <easy. laughs> um, you know? So yeah, alcohol is one that, of course, when when someone gets injured, it's a natural. Uh, an athlete gets injured, it's a natural thing to think about. Is oh yeah, well either either drown your sorrows or hey, I get to have some beer now. Right. Uh, and probably probably you know a couple of beers aren't going to be a problem, but definitely um, there's evidence, lots of evidence in rats. And then John Holly published a paper couple of years ago in humans. And it's very clear that alcohol inhibits protein senses. So, uh, you know, you've got to be very careful about that. It also inhibits healing in yeah. lots of different aspects of the healing process. So yeah, definitely. If you, ha if you want to say avoid one thing, then, then it probably is alcohol. Yeah. And, and uh, I think I'm I don't know anything about nicotine, but uh, you know, I, I can't imagine it's good. Yeah, it, from from what we know clinically, it can really slow healing rates. I mean, it's one of the number one things we look at if we're seeing non-union in a bone or a wound that's not healing. Are, are they a nicotine user? So um, it, it's just the decreased oxygen supply more than anything. Um, and, and so I, and I think that's a good way to come at it, especially like with the alcohol talk is if you have someone, especially an athlete, um, and you let them know that it's blocking their ability to even put muscle on and they're just losing muscle. Um, they, they probably don't look at it from that perspective that, that it's really slow in their recovery. So the, the more knowledge in, in those kind of sense, I think better. So I, I, and I think summing it up here then, um, it, it seems super easy now, Kevin, 
we, 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 first thing we got to have the conversation with the patient, um, which, which is a, is a big step and a big change. I think for a lot of, a lot of us clinicians is okay. Let's talk about what your nutrition is because this is as big a part of your recovery. Um, and, and I think we have a slide that, that is quoted from, from one of your studies where you said, you know, basically not getting these, uh, essential amino acids on board takes you from this anabolic to catabolic state basically. Um, and, and so have to have that discussion and, and then we can start moving into dialing in a little bit closer of, okay, this is probably your dosing of protein based on your body weight, um, your timing of it throughout the day. These are your sources. Um, these are your other macros. And, and let's talk about what you're getting in to supplement your micros. Um, you don't need to go buy a bunch of crazy supplements at the store. Maybe when we get into the, to the real lifting phases, we can look at something like a creatine or, or something like that. Maybe omega threes, um, but don't, we don't want to go crazy with them. You know, everyone's like, you know, if you say six work, then I'm going to take twenty. Um, but but moderation's key. Sound sound pretty yeah, fair. I'd like to see somebody take twenty. <laughs> that, would, that would be disgusting. <laughs> yeah, they'd have some serious stomach issues. Right. Uh, we, we struggle to get them to. You know, if we, when we do our studies, uh, we we did five. You know, and we struggled to do that. We, we did find a there's a company in Norway that makes these juice boxes with with the omega threes and it has protein omega threes and a lot of our volunteers really like those. So there, really? there are now ways to get it. But with if you're trying to get capsules and more than about five in capsules and you're going to be first of all you're going to be burping up burping. <laughs> stuff all the time. you're going to be burping full salmon out of your mouth. Exactly. <laughs> oh, all right, man. So any, any other things that you would want to add um, or even, you know, moving out of the clinical perspective here, any, any pearls or things for our, our athletes and performance or anything like that? Um, I, I suppose something that's a little bit related to this, uh, which is, you know, athletes who might want to drop some weight. Uh, again, this is where protein is, is important. We, we published a paper back in 2010 where we, we showed that, you know, having a higher protein intake during, during weight loss, uh, sort of prevented the, the loss of muscle in some, in these athletes, these weightlifters. And, and there've been several studies that have been done since that, that have, have backed that up both in athletes and in and sort of obese population. So uh, if you want to maintain muscle, if you want to keep muscle during weight loss, because maybe people don't know this, or I'm sure some do, that when you lose weight, if you're in a, in a energy deficit and you're going to lose weight, you're going to lose muscle as well. Mm -hmm. And that especially applies to lean. The, the leaner you are, the higher proportion of muscle you're going to lose during an energy deficit. And one way to help prevent that is to keep protein intake high during that time. And of course, lift weights right. or do resistance exercise of some sort. Yeah. The, the more muscle we keep on, obviously the metabolism keeps driving up and, and, and it's easier to maintain that weight loss over time, I guess. Yeah. And that goes, and there are going to be exceptions to that, of course. And, uh, you know, like for example, if you're, if you're a weight class athlete, if you're, let's say you're a lightweight rower and you're trying to get down, well, at some point, you might have to lose muscle to get to the weight. You know, if you're, in fact, I had some rowers come to me one time and they said, we need to lose a kilo. Uh, and we've been, we've been working hard to lose weight. We just get to this point. We just need one more kilo. 
And I said, when's your, when's your race? And, and they said, uh, in four days, I said, well, you're, you're in trouble. (laughs) So, uh, but, but I asked them what they were doing. They were eating high protein. And so they were, it was protecting their muscle. But of course, if you're, if you're too heavy and you're sitting on the, on the, on the bank of the river and you're not in the boat, well, you're not going to win the race. So, you know, maybe there are times when you have to think again, you got to individualize it, think about the situation. So, uh, but, but if you are trying to maintain muscle mass with weight loss, then, then protein, elevated protein intake is a good idea. Nice. Yeah. And, and I, I think we're seeing this, this pendulum swing 0.8 grams probably isn't cutting it anymore. Even, you know, what we have to push it is, is not just our athletes, but even our elderly folks, you guys are doing good to get that message out, man. I think, I think it's coming around. Any, anything else you want to promote, Kevin, upcoming conferences you're speaking at, Cool projects, new new publications. Uh, well, we've we're we're working on a couple of grants, so you know I can't really, you know, we're not doing those projects yet, so I can't can't say much about it. Um, we we have uh, a paper coming out soon. Uh, it is a weight loss study with omega three fatty acids, uh, so that will be coming out in a specialist issue of the journal Nutrients. Uh, I think I think that is due in the next couple of months. And so it'd come out probably in this spring, um, uh, conferences. I'm not doing any this, this autumn. Uh, I got, I got invited to one in Brazil in in April. So I'll probably be there. Um, right yeah, no, carnival, maybe. sorry, right around carnival, maybe. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> I hadn't thought of that. Um, yeah. So cool. Yeah. Just keep, if you know, just keep looking for our work. We're, we're constantly trying to, to, I was actually working on a paper just before uh, just before the call here. To it's it's a paper that we did a study. We tried to repeat repeat our 2010 study that we did in men, and we repeated it in uh, in women in female athletes with high protein. Um, the results were were kind of mixed, and and I think uh, and I'll take the hit for this. I think I made a strategic error in there that I'm going to have to try to talk about in the paper, but you might be interested to know that the lead author on this was a master's student of ours who now is the starting goalkeeper for Scotland, uh, for women's team, for Scotland women. So nice. uh, Her name is Lee Alexander. Oh yeah. Yeah. Seen the name from your group before. Well, awesome, man. Well, and, and one way to keep up, let me just put your social handles out there. Um, on Twitter, it's at stir prof tip S T I R P R O F tip. And then y'all's, um, your group there has its own Twitter handle too. And so that's at P E N, uh, what is it? R G U S T I R. Um, and so that's two, two cool places. I I follow you, man. And, uh, um, it's great talking to you, brother. We need to, we need to catch up more often and, uh, maybe maybe we'll see each other somewhere. Maybe I'll I'll try and get over to Brazil during carnival. We can hang out. (laughs) Okay. I'm for that. (laughs) All right, Kevin. Thanks brother. All right. Thanks Johnny. It was great. Bye. All right, and we're back in time for some listener questions. So we, we've chosen three excellent questions today. And uh, as we mentioned before, if you subscribe to our podcast and submit questions to us at info at owensrecoveryscience.com, then if we read those questions on air, we, we send you a sweet Owens Recovery Science Earn Your Deflate t-shirt and, and these aren't like the cheap cotton ones ben's a swag freak um and so he makes sure any of our swag has to look 
and feel pretty sweet. So this is the real kind of nice t-shirts that, that actually make you look a little athletic, which is hard to do for some of us on this call here. So anyways, here's our, our first question. This is from Jason. So this is a good question. Are there any contraindications to using caffeine immediately before doing blood flow restriction therapy? We've discussed the importance of your protein supplementation in order to promote mTOR. Um, however, I'm wondering about caffeine prior to an athlete or patient using BFR. We do a lot of our BFR in the early AM clinic hours. Anyone's thoughts on what we know, at least from, from studies done first, and then any other thoughts? Yeah, so, um, man, I sure hope that caffeine isn't contraindicated, but uh, would be there, there isn't a whole lot of information out there. Um, I, I'm, my hopes are, because I'm always caffeinated, that this is a good thing. Uh, looking at, at one of the studies, they, they took in six milligrams per kilogram uh, of caffeine, which is a, a pretty good dose of caffeine uh, versus a control group taking a placebo an hour before doing BFR with knee extensions. And the BFR group actually had a, a significant increase in, in performance. They were able to do more reps. They had a, a higher lactate concentration and they had a reduced perception of pain. So from from that, you know, this is one of the only BFR and exercise studies. There's another ischemic preconditioning one uh, that I've seen, and it, it looks like it may be beneficial. If nothing else, you know, there's not enough information, so maybe we can say it's it's not a bad thing. Um, there's no reason I can think of why it would be contraindicated, uh, unless someone's just doing way too much caffeine and they're really dehydrated, and then you know we're setting ourselves up for some some issues with exercise in general. Right. So caffeine's a performance enhancer. We know that. Um, and, and so the question is, does it affect something at a cellular level that, that would be different because you're under occlusion? And so uh, this, this study, I mean, as soon as I saw the title, I, I was excited about it because, like you said, Ben, if if BFR did not do well with caffeine intake, uh, the majority of us, at least on this call, are probably screwed. We, we need to see how it does with beer intake as well. Um, and, and that can be a win-win if that shows positive results. But but yeah, six milligrams is a pretty high dose. I mean, I, I what is it? Uh, how much? Is, how much is in a cup of coffee? Um, a little over a hundred milligrams. Hundred milligrams or so. It probably varies. My cup is like the size of a of a big gulp, so it's different. But but yeah, so decent amount, but but not not absurd. And and everything improves. So uh, they they increase their their reps. Uh, their pain perception was was different, right? Wasn't it different between groups? So the, the the caffeinated group had reduced perception of pain whenever they did it as well, um, and, and blood lactate concentration was increased. And so uh, a lot of what we talk about, maybe having increased blood lactate, might be a signal for other things to happen. So that one that one's positive. So from that, we would say, go ahead and drink your coffee. There, there's one other study. I haven't read it super deep. Have you guys read it um, where they looked at it from a remote ischemic preconditioning type of model? I have not read that study, no. I've got it here. but So basically what, what I know from a tertiary glance at this was just looking at pathways for uh, – for ischemic preconditioning and remote ischemic preconditioning. So these guys were looking at it more from if you're looking for cardio protection before going in for surgery, uh, from what I understand, and, and they combine caffeine prior to just inflating a tourniquet on and off for multiple bouts. 
and, and they showed a marker, and I'm not even real sure what this marker is, but but something that's valuable as a target to be protective of remote ischemic preconditioning for, for heart muscle was decreased um, if you took caffeine before. So we, we don't know what to say, but if you're about to have major heart surgery um, and they're going to do remote ischemic preconditioning on you, you probably don't want to take in a bolus of caffeine before. Most people are, are NPO, so, so that's a moot point anyways. But but that's basically what we have from the caffeine studies. So in answering Jason's question, I say drink your coffee and, and go crazy, right? Yep. All right. Yeah. So the next one's from Pete. He's got two questions here. His first question is, is there a physiological difference at the cellular level in doing BFR at different altitudes? So, for instance, at sea level, at somewhere like HSS in New York, uh, versus going to an elevated uh, clinical setting, like maybe at, at Stedman's out in Vail. So it, anything that you guys have seen in the literature or thoughts on, on this of, of elevation and BFR? Yeah, I mean, there doesn't really seem to be a whole lot there again. Um, you know, there's a, a couple studies looking at, you know, BFR and performance at altitude with like an ischemic preconditioning type application. And then there's uh, another uh, study that came out of Japan that was looking at uh, what looks like just a safety, you know, proof of concept that it's okay to do at altitude. Right. Um, so it's it looks like you know from what little is there, it's safe. Um, I, I don't know that we really could say that what the differences are if there are differences. Um, you know, obviously there there seems to be a significant difference in in training at altitude versus at sea level. Um, when it comes to, you know, some of the performance aspects, but um, we probably just don't really know enough yet. Um, yeah, I mean, experientially, experientially, in grief, that's a big word. Um, <clears throat> I've done two courses at altitude now, one in Denver, Colorado, another at Flagstaff, Arizona, which was one of the towns he mentioned in his question there. Um, we've had no problems um, at either course in terms of people being able to perform. The one kind of interesting thing was at Flagstaff, I had three different people complete the 15 minute cycling. Um, they went the full 15 bilateral 80% restriction on their lower extremities, which was a first. And after the fact, I kind of started thinking about it like, wow, that's really rare for that to happen. And I actually kind of started wondering like, well, these people, they all live at altitude. I wonder if there's yeah. something there you know yeah, we always hear this live high train low yeah right. exactly so, so who knows but just it's anecdotal for sure but i've done a couple courses with i mean the course in denver we had about 40 people the course in flagstaff was a private course so it was more in the neighborhood of 15 but quite a few people in that class doing bfr you know for the day multiple bouts and, and we're fine of course so and obviously we have people that are doing BFR at altitude quite a bit. So we've got the right. USOC, you know, winter folks that are, that are out there in park city and, and people all throughout Denver and, and up in Canada. Um, and, and we haven't had any reports of, of any adverse events. So that's, that's the one thing that, that we always want to make sure of, but then at a cellular level, you know, it's hard to say because um, there's, there is a change in, in, in oxygen, as you, as you go higher. And so does, does that do anything whenever we're, we're looking at oxygen delivery or when we're doing something to reduce oxygen? So 
yeah, what we really have to say basically to Pete is at a cellular level, we probably don't know. From from that the Japanese study, what they did show is a simulated 8,000-foot altitude. We didn't see increased signs of, of, of VTE formation or thrombus markers and, and the same good stuff that we want to see come out, the, the anti-thrombus markers, uh, TP antigen and things like that, fibrinolytic pathways were activated. So at elevation, it looked like from a safety profile, at least from a, a thrombus standpoint, um, we, were, we were getting the same things that we see at low altitude. And then you just have these beautiful two titles that one of them, ischemic preconditioning improves time trial performance at moderate altitude. And then another study, ischemic preconditioning does not improve peak exercise capacity at simulated high altitude. So, you know, one, it does better. The other one, it doesn't. So then it's, it's with those, is there a study flaws that, that we don't know of? The one that didn't show improved effects. Um, I, I think one thing that was different is they did IPC 45 minutes before the intervention. And, and that seems like a pretty big window there. Um, and, and so that might be an issue. So, so we, we can't say at a cellular level yet, but we can say that we think that it's safe at least to be doing it at altitude. And so far we haven't had any problems with that. The, the one thing, man, with, with the, some of the ski folks that were very highly trained athletes that had very low blood pressure, um, we were, we were having a hard time with the Doppler picking up, picking up their, their limb occlusion pressures just because their blood pressure was so low. So we had to actually do some of the measurements and standing or having them move around a little bit before just because these, these guys, BPs were, were just remarkably low, super, super high end endurance folks. His second question, are there medical, are there certain medications used by middle-aged people that would warrant precaution in using BFR? Middle age, I guess is my age. And, and I know Pete, that's his age too. He might be a little bit beyond middle age. <laughs> what do you guys think? Any meds that y'all worry about, especially in the middle age population? None that really jump out at me offhand. I mean, I would say obviously anything that increases the risk for clotting. Um, you know, maybe we're we're having a little bit more caution with with folks that are post-operative that are on those prophylactic blood thinners, looking for for signs of bruising, things like that. But um, you know, I, I think. Nothing that, that jumps out that isn't listed on the contraindication list. Anyone else? I, I think that's, I, I agree with Ben. Yeah. I mean, maybe a blood thinner um, in, your, in your total joint patient. Um, so this is just something done prophylactically that, you know, you discuss it with the doc. And, and those, you got to just monitor the skin afterwards and, and maybe start with a little bit of a lower pressure. Um, on our contraindication list, I mean, we, don't, we don't have any specific meds other than ones that are known to, to be a clotting risk. Um, so if, if you're on a specific med that would, that would cause that, that's, that's probably something to worry about. I, I pulled up every exclusion criteria that we had in all these studies, and, and there was not uh, you know, a specific med that, that we had listed in, in any studies exclusion criteria. So if, if they're on some sort of uh, heart medication, then you, know, you probably need to get clearance from the cardiologist. Uh, and, and that's more of just what's their exercise tolerance, not really from a, a, a tourniquet standpoint. Uh, but, but those are the main, main ones that I could think of there. Cool. All right, last question. This is from Angela. Are there any published current studies looking at the efficacy of BFR when used in conjunction with an ACI or Macy surgery, specifically if it affects the graft site healing, the post-op profession progression, I guess what she was supposed to say, for these patients is so slow, it would be great to be able to prove BFR is able to accelerate it. 
Yeah, heck yes, Angela. It is super slow, and anything that we could do to accelerate those folks would be huge. And so ACI or Macy, for folks that don't know, that's a cartilage procedure. Um, and, we, and we were actually involved in some of the early work with this in the DOD back when it was the company Genzyme that was doing it. They called it A-Cell. Um, and, and that's where you harvest good cartilage from a non-weight bearing surface inside the knee and you send it off to the lab and they grow it out for about a month and then they send it back uh, in basically like a patch form. And then you go back to the lesion and, and you, you, you make the lesion into a, basically a perfect little circle and, and put the, the good cartilage in, close it with some fibrin glue. And then forever you rehab slowly until you hopefully get some some adaptation where this becomes a, a some sort of form of cartilage. It's extremely long. Um, the protocol, to, you know, is 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 one of the most conservative you've ever seen. Now they're called ACIs or Macy's and Varicel um, is is the company name now that does it. So we, I'll just say right off the bat, we do not have any current studies that are looking at it, but, uh, but definitely we just, it's funny. We just had a conversation a few weeks ago about this and, and I'll touch on that. Um, have, do you guys clinically, do y'all see much ACI or Macy? It's, it's a real expensive surgery. So not a lot of people will get to see them. No, I don't, I don't think we've, I think we've maybe had one, but I think it was kind of in the early days and that was last I can remember. That was probably seven, eight years ago. We had one of those come through. Yeah. So and, go ahead. Ben. Yeah. I was just say my my only experience whenever I was was when I was your your intern uh, working with you guys at the the CFI and just seeing one patient come through that had, had one. So the the one thing I think we we can say is there's a prolonged non weight bearing phase with these and and so there's an anabolic resistance because of disuse. So if we're going to say accelerate, I think one thing that that we can look at is accelerating is. Okay, so if we can slow down the loss of muscle on the thigh and then maybe even have some increased strength and hypertrophy almost at the point of, of weight bearing, we've already accelerated it. And I think it's like we pointed out and, and we use a case, a case model um, from, from one of our, our first NFL guys, eight weeks not weight bearing, that muscle should just go to hell in a handbasket and waste away. And this was a big cartilage procedure that he had. Um, but at eight weeks, you know, the, the muscle basically on, on, on remeasuring and re-imaging was almost the exact same size as the other side. We did BFR daily on him during that non-weight bearing period. Um, and so then he's got a muscle and, and the problem with these things is you do eight weeks on weight bearing and then it's not like all of a sudden at week eight, it's like, Hey, just go crazy and start throwing some weight through that, that limb. Everyone's still nervous and you know, you're, you're still putting very low loads and just testing the lesions. So, the next like four to six weeks is like I'm, I'm doing many minimal things here just to kind of see can the knee tolerate load. But then you're not doing anything for muscles. So then you're still going into this kind of muscle dump. So then you're at like 16 weeks and people are like, hey, when's this guy going to run? It's like, man, I, I need probably like another six months just to try and get the muscle back. So I think from an accelerating standpoint, and this is what we saw, um, even one of our first DOD stories that's out there, the guy was one of these procedures. Um, he's sitting there doing exercises with it. We keep the muscle on. And then even at the eighth week where they're able to start just putting a, a very light load, maybe through something like a leg press, doing that light load with a leg press with a tourniquet on 
is, is insanely different than just doing the, the light leg press uh, alone. And so then I think we go from week eight to like week 12 and we're really truly getting strength and hypertrophy changes. And then, you know, we're hoping that that week 12, then we are kind of moving off tourniquet and moving into more moderate to, to heavier loads that, that they can tolerate it. And so that's what we saw. Um, and, and, and so here's, here's, here's why I really want to do a study in this population because the, we've got some anecdotal that on repeat T3MR, these cartilage procedures, the cartilage looks really good from the musculoskeletal radiologist read. But what we don't have is the ability to go back in and do a second look because that's a very, very hard IRB proposal to get through to do a study. A Macy, you've already got two looks, and, and we rarely get that in orthopedic surgery. So we have a time point where we are in the knee, and then we have four weeks later where we're back in the knee. So this person already has a lesion. And so what my proposal was on this research call is, is we go in and at that first harvest, just do a microfracture where the lesion site is. Because that's, you know, it's pretty much no harm, no foul. So we do a microfracture where that isolated lesion is. And then one group just does rehab for a month. The other group just does the rehab, but they throw a tourniquet on. And then at the four-week standpoint, when they go back in to put the Macy in, we can pull cartilage and they can just clean that bad boy up. And we see, did that microfracture become better cartilage? Was there, was there something, you know, VEGF or something like that? Who knows? Um, TGF beta being suppressed where we had less fibro cartilage and, and more true cartilage. And, and then they just go ahead and put the Macy back in there. So from a patient standpoint, nothing's really changed other than they got poked a little bit where the lesion site is. From our standpoint, it's huge because we just got a cartilage study with two looks. So I don't know if you guys have thoughts on that, but, but that's my proposal. And we, we've got a group that does a lot of these. Um, that's kind of some of the pioneers that, that we might be able to do this. Yeah. Johnny, you kind of walking back a little bit, um, what you were saying about fighting that anabolic resistance and all that, that's kind of where my head goes in, in this population that what, what can we do right now in a clinic? And, and as you said, those procedures are expensive and they're not, they don't come out of nowhere. It's planned. So you have, you have a window preoperatively to, to put on some muscle to, to build the, that mitochondrial base and that satellite cell base so that hopefully you can, you know, get these people a bit more anabolic in that involved limb. Yeah. Um, and then kind of continue on, um, after the first surgery and then, and then after the second surgery and hopefully keep some muscle around and, and, and then when they are able to put weight on that leg, then get, get after it. Um, and then who knows, does it affect the graft site healing, et cetera, but certainly we would accelerate the process just by hopefully keeping some muscle for those folks. Right. Accelerate what we're supposed to be trying to accelerate in, right. in rehab. Exactly. Yeah. Right. Well, cool, guys. Those are good questions. Thanks for sending those in. Anyone uh, listening, please subscribe to our podcast. If you like us, give us five stars. If you don't like us, please do nothing and uh, submit more questions for our next podcast. And, and any um, thoughts that you have, um, we yap too much or, you know, our jokes are terrible. We'll, we'll, we'll take it all in. And so until next time, guys, safe travels and we'll talk soon. Thanks for listening to the Owens Recovery Science Podcast. Owens Recovery Science is a single source for PTs, OTs, ATCs, DCs, MDs, 
and other medical professionals seeking certification in personalized blood flow restriction rehabilitation training. Find them online at owensrecoveryscience.com.